You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Hey, uh, I'm not a guest teacher. Uh, I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the student pastor here. I just have a few less inches of hair. Um, you know, if you want to make jokes, that's fine. You can email me at daniel.wagner at fondernchurch.com. Uh, the top jokes as of so far are uh, Ricky Cox. He said, how much money did you get? And I said, like a fool. For what? And he said, for selling your hair. And uh, then Josh McAlpin gave me the great, uh, great, you know, this really helped you. You look older. You went from 12 to 18. So that's nice, too. And from the peanut gallery over here, I got a few your cutes. I don't really know what to do with that, but that's what I got. Uh, here's uh, really what I'm here for today. I'm, I'm excited about this because this has been such a great series, Fear in an Age of Anxiety. That's just the truth, right? As we've journeyed through this for the past few weeks, we really know that as we live life in 2018, uh, this is just a non-negotiable, right? That we're going to have things that cause us to be afraid. We're going to have things that make us anxious. We've looked at some great stories in Scripture, some great truths in Scripture about fear and anxiety. We looked at the disciples on a boat and thinking that Jesus was asleep and out of control. We've looked at the negativity that comes from questioning yourself, who you are, from listening to the perceptions of other people, uh, from giving into crippling anxiety, depression, contemplating suicide. We've been all over the place in regards to this idea of fear in an age of anxiety. But today, I'm here just to give you a couple of practical helps with how to navigate this this tension that we feel in the way that we live our life in an age of fear and anxiety. I really think it's because we feel like we're stuck in the middle. Have you ever really been stuck in the middle of something? The first thing that comes to my mind, because I'm like 5% nerd, is the Star Wars scene where like they're in the trash compactor. They've like fallen down, they're trying to get out, and it's like coming in on both sides, right? Like they feel like they're going to squish, they have to get out. I think I saw that uh, like captured by a a weed eater or something like that, a commercial for a weed eater. It was supposed to like load quickly and then save somebody's life. I don't really know about that, but the really a real example for me the other day, just being stuck in the middle that everyone's been in is when you're backing out of a parking spot in a parking lot. You know, somebody behind you wants the spot you're in, so they come like way too close to where you are. And you start to back out and then they awkwardly do that thing where they like inch backwards and you inch backwards with them, you know? So you're backing out, they're backing out, and then they have to convince someone else to back out. So they're backing out, you're just stuck in the middle, and then you try to turn. Well, the other day, like the worst thing that could have happened happened, and somebody in front of me, like two or three spots farther down the line, was backing out. So we were almost in unison. Like it was like Olympic synchronized swimming. Like we like started and stopped and started and stopped and started and stopped. And we did this beautiful thing that all people do where like especially in the South, you connect to each other on like this raw telepathic level and you do the exact same thing at the exact same time because you're both too nice because we live in the South. So I'm like back and back and forth with this person and I'm just stuck in the middle, right? Like we just get stuck in the middle. So for us in this age of fear and anxiety, here's a question that I have for you. Why are we fearful when God is faithful? This is a question I've been asking myself recently to leave it vague for dramatic purposes. I've had some things in my life recently, some circumstances have changed where I've really had to ask myself that question, right? Like I know that God is going to be good to me, not because of any merit I have in myself, but because of who Jesus is, the promises God has made to us as his people who trust and believe in him. I know God's going to be good to me in the long run, but here in the short term, I, I'm just filled with this tension, right? I'm fearful, even though I know that God is going to be 
faithful. That's the situation for this passage we're about to turn to. Isaiah 35, if you want to go there in a Bible in front of you, it's going to be up on the screen here in a second. But just to give you some context, I won't bore you, but it's important to know what Scripture meant then so that we can know what it means now. In this context, Assyria was the power of the day. Isaiah prophesied to the people in Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah. And at that time, Assyria was just laying waste nations all around them. And it seemed that Israel was already being captured at this time and Judah was sure to be next. That they were under the oppression of this outside power. Now, if you've been around church for a while or if you're new, here's kind of the way that this covenant that God had with his people worked in the old covenant. I'm going to be your God. You be my people. You worship me. I'll give you possession of this land and I'll bless you. But we know the story of the Old Testament. Time and time again, people forgot who God was. They forgot how good he'd been to them, and they turned either to other gods or to disobedience. They'd forgotten who God was, forgotten that he'd been good to them. Even though throughout all of Scripture, we see towns named after certain events that happen or altars being set up in places so that people could see and remember for generations that God had been good to them. We just forget. That's what happens to us. That's what happened to these people. So here it is in Isaiah 35. Isaiah is prophesying to these people about things that are to come. Their destruction and then their exile a couple hundred years later to Babylon. So here we go. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I'm not a flower person, but that's a flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Will you go back two more to the, uh, the do not fear? There we go. So in a series, fear and the age of anxiety, here we go. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. This is a declaration to a people who did not hear it. They didn't want to hear it. Isaiah had been prophesying his whole ministry to people who never turned, who never repented, who looked back in history, saw that God had done some things, but questioned whether or not he would really be good to them in this present time. We see that God coming into the world changing things, right? This scripture talks about how he gives water to dry places and how he brings healing. Those things for us are a source of joy, right? Real joy in the Lord that we see he's moving in difficult circumstances, that he's taking fear and putting it away because he's a God who cares about us and wants to do a work in his people. Those things should cause us to rejoice, which should then cause us to strengthen ourselves, and trust that God is coming to save us, which would tell us we don't need to be fearful, we don't need to be anxious. 
But we've sat here over these weeks. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back. You can listen online, farnerchurch.com backslash sermons. You can click, listen through this whole series. It's been great, and I would really encourage you to do that if you've missed a couple of weeks, because I think it's worth it in the day that we live in, to be encouraged in this. We're just going to have fear and anxiety. We just are. But it's the heart of God that in the middle of those things, that we would be faithful and that we would live a life that looks like living for him in the good times and living for him in the bad times. Living for him in the times of comfort and living for him in the times of fear, anxiety, and displeasure. So here's what I think happens to all of us because no one in here can say, hey, look, when things in life come to me, you know, whether it's relational tension, whether it's a diagnosis I don't like medically, whether someone gets, you know, looked over for some kind of career advancement, family instability, whatever it is, there are things in your life that you just don't like and those cause you to be fearful, to be anxious. But for all of us, I think that there are, are probably two reasons that we can fall into why we fear the outcome of things, which cause us to be fearful and anxious. Two things. One is that we doubt that God will be good. It's not that we doubt that God is, is good in a way where it's like good versus evil, right? We, we know that God is good, that he's, he's not going to be bad to us, but we forget that God is going to be good in the situation that we're in. We just forget, right? Like, I don't know what it is, but we just go blank whenever we're in the middle of difficult times. There's a a psychological concept that I really love that I think speaks to this. It's, it's that of negativity bias. That all of us as people, we're so affected by the bad things that happen in our life that it gives us an outlook on life where we think that everything is going to be negative rather than positive. A negativity bias. There was a study that happened at Florida State a couple of years ago. Don't know how much you trust their academics, but it looked like a good report to me. They, uh, they did this study where they talked about how deeply people were impacted by positive things versus negative things, which then changed the way that they would look out to future events. So the idea was that they would set these people up and they would talk about certain circumstances and they'd hook them up to electric things in their brain and all that stuff I don't understand. But here's the basic of it. They found that people were more affected in a deep, lasting way by negative events than by positive events. So the situations they tested, losing friends or having friends betray you, losing money or receiving a criticism had deeper impact than the contrary of having a friend, you know, be good to you or getting a new friend, gaining money or having a positive word spoken to you. The reason they came up with that is that our brains separate the way that we receive positive and negative information into different hemispheres. I'm almost done being a total nerd, but here's the thing. Because our brain has to do more work to process the negative, we think that the negative is going to be the future outcome. If you think about it like this, uh, if you lose $1,000, it's probably going to have a bigger impact on you than if you gain $1,000. Most of you probably get that. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know when the last time I got $1,000 was. I'd be pretty excited. Some of you didn't blink an eye one way or another. If that's you, you can make your checks payable to Fondren Church, F-O-N-D-R-E-N. But for all of us, we know that the, the bad really does in our minds seem to outweigh the good. So even though we can look back in our life and in the life of others, the scripture, and see that God has been good and he's going to be good, we just don't. We forget and we doubt him. Not that he is good, but that he's going to be good to us. 
And then the second is like it, that we lack a true faith. Now, this isn't to say that you lack faith in Jesus. That is not my accusation. It's that we lack a faith that accounts for negative things to happen in our lives. C.S. Lewis, great thinker, great theologian, he wrote a book uh, following the death of his wife called A Grief Observed. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to you if you haven't read it. It's a very sad book, so prep yourself for that. But if you're just killing books right now and you need something else to read, A Grief Observed, great read. Uh, He said this about the death of his wife and the emotions that followed it. God has not been trying an experiment out on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. We are guaranteed tragedy in our life. We're guaranteed for everything not to be up and to the right all the time. It's the life we live as a Christian. We have an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy. So we're going to have difficult things happen in our life. I've heard it put, and I, I think it's true, that people are either coming out of a tragedy, currently in a tragedy, or on the way into a tragedy. Life is just like that when we're connected to people. And we have aspirations and dreams and things that God's put in our heart. Just kind of the way it goes. We're guaranteed disappointment. And this doesn't say not to be disappointed. That's, that's not what I'm arguing here for. But there's a time and a place for that. And our faith sometimes doesn't build in a place for us to be let down, a place for us to be hurt, a place for us to be disappointed. Like God promises to us, sometimes we just don't have a place for it. The next part of this quote, if my house has collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. The faith which took these things into account was not faith, but imagination. Not faith, but imagination. What is faith? Hebrews says it's the assurance of things unseen, that we would trust God in all things, that we would have a a big faith in him, a saving faith in him, but then a a faith that he's going to be good to us, a faith that his promises are true, a faith that he's going to do the things that he said he's going to do. But for us, right, we, we don't always think about the negative things in our life, right? We don't think that we can be let down. We don't think that God is going to put us through something that we wouldn't desire, right? So we turn our back on him. It's like we pull away when things don't go well. And I think it's because we haven't built up a, a great faith that leaves room for hurt in our life. Not faith, but imagination. So I'm going to tell you two things now. Two pieces of advice I think I'd give you uh, for what to do in the middle of fearful times because we're guaranteed fearful times. We're guaranteed things that are going to make us scared of what the future holds. I would say, one, look to God. These two things, they're not going to be things that you've never heard before. I hope they're encouragements and things that you do know. But when we're in the middle of fearful times, we need to look to God. So often, whenever things turn upside down in our life, whenever things get bad, what do we do? We shake our fist at God. We wonder why he could allow something like this to happen to us as if there's not something on the other side of it. We ask him to go away, to get lost, that we can handle this on our own, right? We turn our back on God whenever things get bad. So when we're in the middle of fearful times, that's not the heart of God. It's that we would run to him, that he would be our shelter and our refuge. Here's a Psalm 32, great scripture. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. When times get hard, we run away from God, but that's not the heart of God. Here he is calling us to go to him, right? Like when things get bad, I don't know why we think we can handle it on our own. Maybe you're more skillful than me, but I, I cannot keep my life together. When things start to unravel, I can grasp and grasp and try and try and try to no avail. But God calls us to run to him as a refuge and a shelter that we would look to God in our difficult times in the times where fear and anxiety are creeping in. And he'll offer us counsel. Have any of you guys gotten bad advice before? I mean, we've all gotten bad advice, right? Can I tell you what? God gives some really great advice, right? If he is truth and his words are true, if his word is beneficial, then we should turn to him because he's going to show us what to do. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's got things that are working for our good, so we need to seek him in those things because he's going to be faithful to lead us through it. That we would look to God. In this passage, for these people in Isaiah, the Israelites, they're looking around. They see people who are coming to get them. They see a promise that they think God's given them being taken away from them. Their world is upside down. God speaks to them in a way that is active. He is an active God. He's not passive in your trial. He's not passive in your fear. He's not passive in your anxiety. God is doing work in your life, whether you see it or not. And if you don't, I'd ask you to slow down, look around, find the counsel of some good friends, and ask them to show you what God's doing. Because God is working in your life. That's who he is. So there are some things that God says he will do in this passage. And these are truths for those people and could be truths for us. He will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. He will make change in the dry land. He will heal those who need it. He will show his glory. He will make himself known. Some of these things he's done, some of these things he did in the context of the Israelites and Isaiah, some of these things are for us, right? Some of these things may happen in this life, and some of these things may just be promises for the next life, right? If you've got a diagnosis, I don't know that God's going to give you healing. I think he can, but I'll guarantee you, you'll be healed for sure in the life to come. And that's what gives us joy. So when he's working something here, that's great. When he's working something in the life to come, that's even better. So in the middle of our fearful times, we need to look to God. And then the second, just as simple, we need to do what he says. Look to God, do what he says. So for us, when we're in the middle of fearful times, often we run around and we forget who God's been in our life. We forget really what it looks like for us to abide, obey, and follow Jesus, right, and everything that he says. We kind of throw our, uh, our life that worships God out the window whenever times get crazy because we think we just don't have time or just don't need or just have to focus on our problem or whatever it is. But I would argue that really in the middle of our fearful times, that's when we need to follow what God says for us the most. Uh, Isaiah 35, what we looked at earlier, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. When we're in the middle of it, look, sometimes we're so busy running away from whatever the problem is that we forget that we really have the victory, right? That God gives us the final victory, that he makes all things right in the end. 
right, that no weapon formed against us will stand, right, that nothing will prosper against us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We spend our time running, right, instead of really recognizing that God's called us to be firm, to stand in what it is. So when those things creep in, when the doubt creeps in and the fear creeps in, the anxiety creeps in, the sadness creeps in, it's okay to let those things have a place for a while. We've talked about that in the previous weeks. But at some point, we've got to take God's word for what it is. We've got to stand firm in the middle of the things that scare us, that make us question, that make us doubt, that lead to sadness. The next, I'm really not good at this, but James 5, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I'm not a farmer. I do not have a green thumb. Anything I touch dies. You could go up to my office on the third floor and you would see a couple of dead plants there that were really cool in the beginning, but now they're just very dead, right? I'm not patient. Uh, I really love farmers because they, you know, they give me food and I'm grateful for that as a bigger guy. But they, uh, they really are great at this concept of patience, right? You don't, as a farmer, just go out and throw some seeds in the ground, go to bed and come out the next day and you got a big plant, right? It's a lot of work. It's not like things just grow because a farmer puts some things in the ground and yells, grow! Like that's not, that's just not how farming works. We are called to be patient like the farmer. We don't want to be patient in the age of microwaves, high-speed internet, on-demand television, if anybody does that anymore. We can have what we want when we want it. So to trust that God has got something in our life that has a purpose, but that's going to linger for a little while, we are not good at that. We're not good at patience. But we're called to be patient like the farmer because we know that things have seasons and there's usually a reason for the season that you're in. Uh, Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5. Rejoice in sufferings. Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody wants to rejoice in sufferings. Like that's, that's just not who we are as people. We see things that we don't like and we run away from it. To rejoice in sufferings is, is kind of a, a weird concept. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but I did it in the 930, so I feel like I have to be fair now. I have like um, a migraines, like I get migraines. You know, mostly, it's mostly women who get migraines apparently, so there's that for me. I feel your pain, ladies. I don't know what that means. But I was talking to somebody who has a, a different kind of chronic diagnosis and like it involves throwing up sometimes. So we were having a conversation about throwing up. It's really lovely at lunch. I hope the booth next to us wasn't too offended. But like, I was talking about this, about Romans 5, you know, rejoicing in sufferings, like the things in your life that are going on. And it's not like when I'm like throwing up, I'm like, oh God, I love you. Praise God. Rejoice in sufferings. Like that's not, that's not what that means really, but it's just an awareness, right? Like a deep-seated joy in our life that we know that even though we have things in our life that we don't like, situations that we don't want, things that make us fearful and anxious, that we would see that God's going to be good in those things. And that he is using that to produce endurance and hope, which doesn't put us to shame. We don't always like the things that happen in our life, but God has a purpose for those things. And then the last verse, I think probably the best one for us here. To count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This concept of steadfastness, sometimes translated endurance, is what I think our, our best approach to being faithful in the middle of fearful times looks like. This Greek idea of steadfastness, sometimes it's translated endurance. I'm not an endurance guy. That's just not me. Some of you people run far distances. I picture like a 103-pound Kenyan man running. Like, that'd be a good illustration for you, but I don't think it's necessarily right. If I was going to run 60 miles, I think I'd have to cut the top half of my body off and let my legs go and be blessed. But I, I think uh, the other direction, right, in the world of like powerlifting, strength. So there's this guy who set the world record for the deadlift a couple of uh, months ago with lots of help from drugs, I'm sure, named Half Thor Bjornsson. Isn't that a great, strong Icelandic name? Half Thor Bjornsson. Uh, that's a picture of him setting that. That's a lot of leg for a big man, so I'll put that down as soon as we need to. Uh, but that's him setting the deadlift world record at 1,041 pounds. 1,041. 1,041. 1,041 pounds. So, uh, yeah, that's a lot of leg. That doesn't stay up there any longer. But the idea here of steadfastness, right, is, is kind of like this, like a power lifter. That uh, he has done that weight before, right? Like, that's not the first time that he did that when he went out there on that meet. You might know, not know the powerlifting world. I don't know why I know these obscure things about life. But, like, in a meet, you only have a certain amount of time. You're trying to hit a lift. You're trying to make sure somebody else doesn't do that. So in practice, these people know exactly what they're going to do before they go out and do it in a meet, right? So that's a weight that he was comfortable with, that he had hit before, right? So he just walks out when it's time to do what he needs to do, takes that thing, and does that. Sets a world record. Weird. Why am I telling you this? The idea of steadfastness is being able to be constant under a weight or under a load, right? It's this idea that regardless of what's happening, that we would be the same in ideal and not ideal circumstances. Steadfast. And that's what James is telling us there. The Lord is telling us, look, there are going to be things trials that you're not going to like. But be steadfast. Be the same person in ideal and unideal circumstances. So for us, like we've got to think about that. Are you really, am I really the same person in ideal and unideal circumstances? Have I really conditioned myself to be steadfast? Am I looking to Jesus in all things? Am I daily thanking him for the good and bad things in my life? Am I really anchored in him? Because I'm telling you, there are going to be things in your life. Some of you might be sitting right there right now, and your life is great. It's all up and to the right. But this is just an assurance of the world. I don't wish this for you. I don't pray this for you. We pray against suffering for our people, believe it or not. Like, we want to be for you at Father and Church. We believe God has good things for you. But there are going to be things in life that aren't good, things in life that will test you. And it's my prayer that we would be steadfast, that we would be the same in fear and anxiety as we are in ideal circumstances. Because the work we do, the things that we are, the, the rhythms that we build into our life in good times, those are the things that make the bad times more doable. Because God's already sown those things in our life. This is really my hope for us, that we would realize that maybe all is not well in terms of fear and anxiety, 
but that all is well regardless of our fear and anxiety. This here, that not all is well in terms of our fear and anxiety, but all is well regardless of our fear and anxiety. We are guaranteed fear and anxiety in 2018. We are guaranteed fear and anxiety as Christians, but to let those things consume us, especially in the middle when God's still doing a work, that's not what he has for us. He doesn't want us to be fearful. He doesn't want us to be crippled by anxiety. He wants us to enjoy him in his fullness, trusting that he's going to be good. Why are we fearful when he's faithful? And I think for uh, the people in Isaiah, they look to a promise that we already have. They were in the middle of something. They had a threat coming their way. They needed assurance that things were going to be all right. For us, we already have that assurance. Isaiah 35 This is a messianic passage. Isaiah is prophesying about the Jesus that we have and things to come still in the future for us when Jesus comes back, makes all things right. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The people in Isaiah wanted that. They treasured that as a future to come. But I'm telling you, we're living in that. Jesus has come. And he lives with us. He calls us to follow him. We have obtained gladness and joy. And the sorrow and sighing, they can flee away. But in life, we got things that make us fearful. We got things that make us anxious. So if you don't know Jesus and you need help in those things, I tell you to turn to Jesus. Because he's the one who heals those things. He's the one who sets us free. He's the one who gives us what we're looking for. But for us who do, for those of us who know Jesus, we've got to trust that this is true for us today. That in him we find gladness and joy, even though things still aren't perfect. We're still stuck in the middle. We're still stuck in the middle of this fear and anxiety and the promise of what God is doing in our life the things that he set us free from, the things that he said are true about us. These circumstances, our fear is chasing us, but we've got to look to Jesus. Here in this life and in the life to come, that's our hope, that's our joy, that's what overcomes these things that come against us, that the promises of God are true, that everything he's doing is good, whether we see it or not. And it's my prayer that we would be people who would trust that he's going to be faithful, that that would take our fear away.